Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Brett. Hi, Jeff. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Glad to be recording a podcast on the Friday. I love it. My favorite day to record the practice. Favorite day of the week. I have a question for you. All right. If you could live anywhere in the world without limits, meaning doesn't matter where your work is or your kids are, where would you live? Other than your house. Besides my okay. house. I mean, you're welcome, by the way. I appreciate that. To come and live Thank in my you. house anytime. So I'm going to describe a place rather than a specific location, and that is somewhere relatively near a body of water, whether it be a bay, an ocean, or lake. Walking distance to a small little town where we could walk in and we could ride a bike, we could do that. We don't rely on a car necessarily, a motorized vehicle. And not too far away from hiking trails in the hills and in the mountains. So it's Lake Cuomo, maybe? <laughs> what about you, Mr. Bast? I love where we live. You know, I'm a Miami lover. Mm-hmm. I love the ocean, so I have to be close to the ocean. I think Costa Rica, for the very similar reason, because it has all those access to the ocean, access to nature, mountains, calming lifestyle. Calling our friend Paul Urshan. Yeah. Come on, Paul, I'm so coming sh- down. So shout out. All right, well, our guest All right, is kind yeah. of, look at him, poor guy. We'll let you answer the question after I introduce <laughs> you. Our guest today is Greg Alexander. Greg is the founder of Collective 54, the first mastermind community dedicated exclusively to the thriving professional services firms with big aspirations. Collective 54 helps members make more money, work less, and get to a larger exit and a faster exit. Members get access to a network of peers, proprietary content, benchmarking data, coaching, events, software, all custom-built to serve their unique needs. Greg's backstory is after selling his own professional services firm, the consulting firm SBI, for a staggering $162 million, Greg founded Collective 54, and through his expertise and guidance, he helps members grow, scale, and exit their firms. He's also authored the best-selling book called The Boutique, How to Start, Scale, and Sell a Professional Services Firm. And he's the host of a very popular podcast, second only to the practice, called the ProServe Podcast. Welcome, Greg. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to see you. I like, Jeff, by the way, how you had to pause when you said big aspirations. Yeah. Wanted to make sure that you pronounced it correctly. Yeah. Realized I added an article in that phrasing that caused me to pause a little, so. Well done. Anyway, Greg, welcome. By the way, you want to answer the question about where you'd like to live? I'm like you in that where we spend our summers is my favorite place in the world, and that is in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Oh, uh, yeah. Love it, Jackson Hole. Yeah. We like to hike and fly fish and raft and all that, so we're in between Yellowstone and Grand Teton oh, National Park, and oh, it's a man. great place. That is beautiful country out there. Yeah, I love it there. I've only been there in the summer and just really amazing. Loved it. Greg, so tell us your journey. How did you get your start in professional services? Obviously, you had a successful exit, but take us from the beginning. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I was raised in Boston, Massachusetts. You probably hear that in my accent today, although I live in Texas now. I describe my professional journey in three chapters. So chapter one was my time as an employee, and I got super lucky. I got hired off the college campus and went to work for a hot tech company in the 90s called EMC. You guys might remember them. I was an early employee there and kind of rose up through the sales ranks, had a great time there and learned what it meant to be an employee inside of a large corporation. 
for our listeners, what kind of services did EMC do and what did you do on the sales? So EMC wasn't a service company. They were a product company and we manufactured data storage devices. This was well before the era of cloud computing and SaaS and all that. You know, big companies used to have these things called mainframe computers and they would store massive amount of data and we sold that data storage device. So that's what we did. The company was an amazing story. At one point, they were in the S&P 500. They ended up getting sold to Telecomputer a few years ago. I started there as an entry-level salesperson, rose through the sales ranks and became one of the sales leaders of that company. So that took me to chapter two, which I left EMC. The dot-com bubble burst. The whole tech industry got put on its head. and A lot of people were figuring out what they wanted to do next. So I started a management consulting company, and this was my chapter as an entrepreneur. That company was called SBI, which stood for Sales Benchmark Index. What it did was it brought the science of benchmarking to the art of sales. And it was a classic consulting firm. We competed with the big guys, you know, the McKinsey's and the Bain's of the world. And we specialized in business-to-business sales effectiveness. But companies would hire us if they had large sales organizations and they were unhappy with the productivity of those teams. And then we would do things such as redo the hiring profiles, rewrite the compensation plans, redesign org charts, train the sales team on product releases, things of that nature. I had that from 2006 to 2017, and I sold that in 2017. And that launched me into the third chapter of my life, which is the one that I'm in right now, and that is of an owner, an investor. And I'm now investing in boutique professional services firms, And the way I do that is through the current company called Collective 54, which you introduced to the audience. It's a community of owners and founders of professional services firms. And some of those firms require growth capital as they start to hit the scale stage. So we'll make investments in those firms as well as provide them strategic counsel and hopefully lead them to an ultimate exit. That was my journey. That's amazing. Very impressive. Going back to chapter two for a minute and your entrepreneurial journey. When you first started SBI, what was your thought process and your plan? Was it to scale it to get to the point where you had an exit? Walk us and our listeners through that. I wish it was, but it wasn't. Truth be told, I started that firm to answer a question for myself. And the question was, how good am I? The reason why I wanted to answer that question is because I rode a wave in chapter one, the tech wave. And I had a lot of success, but it was somewhat unfulfilling because it was the right place at the right time. Don't get me wrong, I was grateful for that. And, you know, I became financially independent as a young man, which allowed me to go become an entrepreneur. I still had that kind of burning question. I figured the only way to answer it was to start with nothing, you know, no customers, no services, no employees. So literally from the kitchen table, I started the firm that way. And then, you know, as time went on, you start to have some success and your aspirations and ambition expand. You know, I woke up one day eight, nine, 10 years into the journey, I said, geez, you know, I might have built an asset here, something that somebody might want to buy. At that point, we were serving private equity clients rather extensively, some of the best known ones. And sometimes they would say to us, hey, if you guys ever want to sell your firm, let us know, we might be interested. And I had never been through an exit before. I didn't even know really what that entailed. But, you know, we hired an investment banker and ran a process and they did a great job. And It was a life-changing moment for me and my partners. It was a great education because you guys might remember, but there was a time in our society where people believed that services businesses were unsellable because there were no assets. You know, they used to say all the assets walk out the front door every night. 
But that has changed dramatically. I mean, we're living in the golden era of professional services right now. Give you some data. There's about just under 1.5 million pro-serve firms in the United States right now. It's $2 trillion spent per year on professional services. This is according to IBIS World Reports. Organic growth rate of 5%. We employ well over 13 million people just in the United States. So it's a huge industry with incredible growth characteristics behind it. So we were in the right market at the right time at that time as well. So luck played a role in that exit for sure. Now and back to chapter three, we're going to bounce around the book here. In chapter three, when you're advising clients, I think one of the things you said is that you didn't have an eye on the exit. Exit doesn't sound like it was even in your lexicon at that time. And so you didn't set this thing out with a plan to sell or exit. And so I'm wondering if you would advise that strategy for young professional services firms now is start out and run your business and build it. If you're always looking for an exit, maybe it takes their eye off the ball. If I was to do it over again, I would have started with the exit in mind. It doesn't mean that I would have exited, but I would have wanted the option to exit. Within Collective 54, we have three tiers of membership. We have a growth tier. These tend to be younger, less mature, smaller companies. We have a scale tier. And these are firms that are well past worrying about survival. They're trying to figure out how to work smarter. There's a variety of ways that they do that. And then there's the exit tier, which are people that have been doing it for a while and they do want to have the exit. And our programming lines up with those three stages. But our benchmarking data would tell you that on average, your mileage may vary, it takes about 15 years to go from launch to exit, five years in each one of those stages. Now, I did it in 11 years, not because I was smarter than anybody. There was a lot of circumstances that played into that. But you start with the exit in mind, you can go faster. You can compress that life cycle. And then at that point in time, you know, you have the ultimate choice, which is I can continue to run my firm because I love what I'm doing and I like my clients and my employees and I'm being paid well. Or maybe there's something else I want to do with my life and I can now monetize my life's work, which would give me the capital to go do that. Give us a sense of what's included in professional services. We provide professional services, law firms do, but I would imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, that law firms are not included in the statistic that you were referring to. They are actually So the reason why the number 54 is in the name Collective 54 is that is the industry classification code for professional services from the North American industry classification system. And there's subcategories in there as well. But what they all share in common is they all market, sell, and deliver expertise as opposed to the manufacturer of a product. They're not a blue-collar service like cafeteria services or janitorial services. They're knowledge workers. So within that, There's the legal vertical, which includes lots of things, law firms, legal services firms, et cetera, accounting firms, marketing agencies, consulting firms, IT service providers, that's a big one, architects and engineers, designers. It's a really large category with several subcategories. And the domains are very different. For example, like, you know, what would a marketing agency learn from an IT shop? Because the basics of community businesses, ours included, is that you put together a network and peers learn from peers. And what's surprising is, even though the domains are entirely different, the business model is the same. You still have to acquire clients, so you got to deliver high client sat. you got to employ people and have a talent supply chain. You've got to figure out how to price your services, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the challenges are the same, even though the domains are different. How does Collective 54 work? First, how do people find Collective 54? How do they find their way? Is it invitation only, or are you reaching out to folks? And then when they do find it, what happens? So our member acquisition process is a blend. 
I'd say it mostly comes through referrals from existing members. We're at a little over 300 members now, so there's enough critical mass there where that's happening. Sometimes people read the book or listen to the podcast or watch the YouTube channel and they come. We do have a business development team that does proactive outreach. We're constantly monitoring for successful professional services firms. We're focused on what we call thriving firms, which are firms that are growing above the industry growth rate. And the reason for that is because those are the firms that tend to have the scalability challenges that we address as opposed to firms that might be struggling. So that's how people find us. We do have a application and there's some basic requirements to become a member. For example, you need to be north of $5 million in revenue between 25 and 250 employees. Geographically, you need to be on the North American continent. We don't do anything outside of North America. And you have to be a founder, a co-founder, a CEO, or a equity partner in the business. We put people through the application process. There's a membership review committee. If the application gets processed and they get welcomed into the membership. Brett and I are familiar with this sort of the peer-to-peer concept because we're both members of EO. And I'm curious, can you describe what that is, what peer-to-peer is for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with it? So I am a graduate of EO. I loved EO. I was part of them when I was a younger person. And then I was in YPO and then Tiger 21, which is another one of these groups that a lot of YPOs join after they exit their firm. In most communities, there's kind of six features of a community. So the first is the network. So this is the peer group. And like in EO's case, I mean, they have a huge network. It's probably 20,000 strong now, but they all have that entrepreneurial component to their lives. And that's how they curate the network. With us, we curate a network on three things. You got to be in that industry sector. You've got to be in that segment, which we call the boutique. And you got to be one of the owners. So everybody in our group, that's how we define a peer. We feel that peers learn best for peers. So that's number one. Number two is there has to be some content, some curriculum, some learning material that can help this community solve common problems. Number three is data in the form of benchmarking data. This can be simple things like how much should I pay my employees? How much should I price my services? You know, what should my utilization targets be? Things of that nature. Number four, there's usually a coaching program. So in our case, coaching is one-on-one coaching, and that's done through the mentor-mentee relationship. There's group coaching, which is done by cohorts. We put them together in leadership boards, groups of 15. In EO, they call that form. We have a version of that here. And then there's expert-led sessions. We have a monthly speaker series that comes in and members get a chance to be taught by some of the world's leading experts. The fifth thing that is common amongst communities is some type of event schedule, which is a blend of virtual events and in-person events. Thank heavens, we're back to in-personal events. And then lastly, there's a software tool of some kind. It's a member portal where you'll have a member directory and activities calendar, all the content, recorded sessions, et cetera. So that's kind of what is typically involved in a community like ours or EOs or others. That's what we mean by peer-to-peer. I imagine you have this all over the country. You have some in-person meetings. Are there large sort of national events that people can go to? And how is that sort of organized? Is it organized by state? Is it organized by city? What is different about our community than EO is we don't have any chapters. There's one giant chapter. And that was intentional. We wanted to leverage the digital economy and be able to build a nationwide network and have members have access to everybody in the network on a regular basis as opposed to just access to a chapter. And there's pluses and minuses of that. That's the way we did it. 
There is one big annual event, an in-person event. It's called the Founders Summit. In fact, it's coming up November 6th and 7th in Fort Worth, Texas. And then quarterly, we have regional meetups. So there is some geographic density, concentration of members. And where there's enough members geographically, we'll have quarterly meetups. And those are more social. They tend to be dinners, happy hours, that kind of thing. Sounds great, by the way. When I think of a peer-to-peer network, based on personal experience, I think of an organization or a community. I like that phrasing that you used. A community of similar people who may or may not be in the same industry. So other business owners, in the case of EO, other business owners who can engage and learn from each other without any type of interest, without any interest in the outcome, no stake in the outcome. And so we're in EO forums, as you know, Greg, we're prohibited from doing business with each other so that there is no risk of conflict or interest in each other's business. And so when I meet with my forum, those are other business owners who can share experiences with their businesses or lives, and they don't have an interest in my business or my life. Where else can you find truly people without an agenda? That's so important. I think the best analogy I've heard is it's your personal board of directors. That's a great way of saying it, for sure. And I think that as business owners, or even just as adults in this world, having extra sets of eyes or ears and minds considering the issues that you're struggling with is just invaluable. And I think it's something that so few people have access to, but could benefit from. You're right. I mean, and sometimes, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, a founder, they can get a little lonely. There's things that you can't talk to your employees about. Most of our members are partnerships, so there's two or three partners that are running the shop, and there can be, at times, partner conflict. Sometimes, maybe you don't want to talk to your spouse about things, what have you. So to be able to have that conversation with true peers, people that are literally walking the same path that you are, is not only fantastic from a business perspective, but just cathartic personally as well. So the one thing that got me, maybe it was the first forum, second forum, you know, as I got into EO years ago, was you're not alone. Like you're not the only one having these issues, right? Because like you said, Greg, it can be lonely being an entrepreneur. And so you think I'm going through all this stuff, like nobody else is having these issues. And then you sit in a room with forum, it's eight people, seven other people, and everyone has similar issues or gone through similar issues, even though they may not be in the same business as you. And it's really refreshing and it instantaneously makes you feel better. But then you get that feedback from them as well. Yeah. I mean, whenever I'm, not only do I own Collective 54, but I'm also a member and I participate in my forum. Again, we call it a leadership board. Every time I'm in there, I say to myself, okay, so I'm not as dumb as I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's always amazing. And I think you touched on this in the beginning that some people think that, oh, how am I going to learn from someone? If I'm a marketing agency, how am I going to learn from, uh, you know, Brett who runs a law firm? And yet, We all have employees, we all have sales issues, we all have client issues, customer issues, partner issues. And it's always amazing that even when a member doesn't have the same issue, they might have had a fight with an aunt or an uncle, a dispute with an aunt or an uncle. And the story of what happened there and how they handled it can be helpful to you in your business issue. So there's so many parallels and so many ways to learn from each other. It's really just fantastic. So I'm curious with Collective 54, and maybe you may or may not want to reveal this publicly, but do you have an exit strategy? Is the plan to exit from Collective 54 when you started it? (laughs) No, I don't think so. I mean, I've been very blessed, and I have all the money that I could ever want and never thought I was going to have. When I sold my firm, I was 47 years old. 
And I had been grinding it for 25 years and I thought I was done. My wife and I went and traveled around the world and had a ton of fun. And then I started to get bored. There's only so many rounds of golf you can play and only so many steaks you can eat, right? So it was like, okay, now what? And, and since I was such a huge fan of the idea, you know, having been through EO, YPO, and Tiger 21, I was drawn to the community element of things. And not to be cliche, but I wondered, you know, how I could contribute, you know, where could I give back? And I just saw a need for it. And I thought this was a way that I could contribute. And I get so much fulfillment and joy from engaging with the members that I couldn't imagine my life without it. Now, I say that 15 years from now, somebody offers me $5 billion and I sell it. You guys are going to remind me of this conversation <laughs> <laughs> and say, why do you sell it? But, you know, as of right now, I can't imagine exiting it. But I didn't think I was going to sell my consulting firm either. You know, and then right. things happen. So we are building it so that if we ever did want to sell it at some point, for example, EO is a nonprofit. It's really hard to sell nonprofits. We're a for-profit. So that one distinction alone helps us sell the firm someday if we decide we want to. So I am practicing what I preach and giving ourselves that option. But I'm 52 now. I'm not ready to put my feet up on the desk. So I would think I'm going to stay with this for quite a while. All right. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention the business cards behind you. I'll set the scene for our listener because they can't see it. We're obviously, Greg is not here in Miami. He's in a beautiful home office. And behind him, we see shelves and shelves of what look like these little boxes. There's labels on them. And we had asked him before we started recording what was in those boxes and their business cards. I mean, there's got to be thousands yeah, of them. It, it almost looks like a card catalog. Right, shelves. the Dewey Decimal yeah, exactly. System card catalog. So when did you start this? Why did you start it? And how many cards do you have? So I have a dream and I haven't been able to pull it off yet. So this is my version one of my dream. And that is, I wish there was a Hall of Fame for entrepreneurs. And I wish kids went on their school trip and they went to the Hall of Fame of entrepreneurs. And through that, they learned about these amazing people that built this great country of ours. And I don't think entrepreneurship, which is what I'm passionate about, I don't think is taught enough in our educational system. And being a huge sports fan, I've been to all the Hall of Fames, you know, and I go to them and I read about the great players and coaches of the past. And when I was playing sports as a young boy, it was inspirational. So I wanted to go build an entrepreneur's Hall of Fame, but that's a very large project. So I said, well, how do I get started? And I stumbled onto this subculture of people that collect business cards. Business cards, because we're now in the digital era, are now an obsolete historical artifact. In fact, most people don't even have business cards anymore. But there's a group out there, sickos like me, that create business cards of famous entrepreneurs. So I have behind me a thousand business cards. That was a good guess. They're framed. And it's of an entrepreneur who I've read about and I admire. So I guess I'm the selection committee of one. And then underneath is a little description of their birth date and when the company was founded and a little story about them. And I try to start my day every day with a cup of coffee and pick 10 out and kind of read them and reacquaint myself with them and about their story. And it's just you know, a little motivational technique. Someday, you know, if my dream does come true, hopefully we'll be in a big, beautiful building somewhere and we're hosting events and we're teaching the world about these remarkable people. In the Entrepreneur Hall of Fame. I love it. I just want to follow up. This is awesome. I love it. And I love that you take the time every day to like read a certain number and like just reacquaint yourself with it. When you go places, 
look for people? Are there certain people that you have in mind that you don't have their card that maybe you're going to find your way to a place where you know they're going to be? How does this work, this collection process? Well, most of the people are passed, so we don't have a chance to meet them. But people collect these things, and mm-hmm. there's a system like the old baseball card where you can trade them. I mean, I think Babe Ruth's baseball card is the most valuable card in the world, and if you own one of those, there's a whole thing around that. I found most of them that way. A lot of these amazing entrepreneurs have foundations now. If you go to their foundation and you donate to their cause, and I've done some of that, they'll have a whole story about how the foundation was created, which would include the story of the entrepreneur. And there's artifacts, business cards being one of many that are associated with that. Some of them are people that are still alive. So for example, I have an early business card from Jeff Bezos, Amazon, a million years ago when they were first getting into AWS, I was in a meeting with them. They were building out a Salesforce for the first time. And he was probably in a grand meeting of 90 seconds, but he threw around a bunch of business cards and I grabbed it (laughs) and I got it that way. I've got Elon Musk's business card. I attended an event that he was at regarding SpaceX. And I live here in Texas. That's where they're at. So there's a whole variety of different ways. I have a list of people that I hope to acquire their business cards and add to it. This is amazing story. So, I mean, one of my prized possessions is I have the business card of Levi Strauss. Wow. Um, That's cool. You know, his story of participating in the gold rush, but unconventional. Yeah. It was a really interesting story. And things like that tell you that it's okay to be unconventional and maybe take a different path. You don't have to ride the wave like everybody else is riding the wave. And there's so many stories like that to learn from. Yeah. Well, the genes were a tool. You needed genes to be sifting through the gold. So it was tangential to the gold rush and what a great And yet, here we are, we still wear Levi's, right? So just think about that for a moment. It's amazing. Yeah, that is very cool. This is great. Good stuff. I love that. I don't think you're sick at all for collecting business cards. In fact, I I think think it's it's actually a healthy collection and much cooler than stamps or butterflies. But thanks for sharing that with us. Really cool. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a five-star review. Share it. Follow us. Send it to your friends. Send it to your family. Send it to your favorite aunt or uncle. Or your favorite entrepreneur. Or your favorite entrepreneur. Sharing the show helps others find it, helps us produce better content, and just sends a positive energy into the world. So let's make the world a better place by sharing the Practice Podcast. Greg, thanks so much. Brett, thank you. Nelson, thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Nelson. Jeff, you're the man. Thanks for having me, fellas. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron.